Viva and Margaret. Viva the excitement when these two let themselves go on a wild and woolly whirl through Funtown, USA. Yes, the sky's the limit for love, laughter, and those wonderful new sounds. When this boy falls, he really falls hard. But who wouldn't when the girl is seductive and Margaret? Viva Las Vegas! Stiffish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm your host, Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. We are going to the bright lights of Las Vegas for our Road to 100, talking about the 1964 Elvis Presley feature, Viva Las Vegas. And we have a special guest talking to us today about all things Elvis. It is critic, writer, all around awesome game, Sheila O'Malley. Sheila, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me and giving me a chance to rave about Elvis. As if we need an excuse. (laughs) Right, right. Sheila, for people that don't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your love of classic cinema, where the love of Elvis came from, all of that? Yeah, so I am a film critic. I do regularly review films for RogerEbert.com before Film Comment went on hiatus due to our current situation. I had a column there and I write, wrote regularly for them as well. You know, I grew up in an era <laughs> before cable, or at least my family didn't have it. And so there were like Saturday movies on local TV. And that's how I saw so many of the films of classic cinema before I knew what I was even watching. I was a child watching Bringing Up Baby and Shirley Temple movies and all that stuff. And once once VCRs came, then I just was inhaling it. And Elvis was just sort of always there. I don't remember the first time that I was even aware of him because he's so omnipresent kind of thing. He's not my generation. I was, it was long after my time. And once I started writing though, okay, so I, once I started writing on my blog, I liked to write about performance. I like to write about, that's always been my thing, is I try to write about acting and performance. And I'm particularly interested in people who it's a little bit difficult to write about them. Like, what is it that they're doing? Why did people love them? What is it about their persona? And how did they use their persona? It's very kind of challenging sometimes to write about. Elvis is another issue because the general feeling is that he was terrible. And granted, you know, I'm not going to say he's Laurence Olivier, but what he was doing was appropriate for what he was asked to do. And I thought that, that was an interesting and something that hadn't been covered. It's hard to find new stuff to write about that not every single person has written about. I've written about Cary Grant, but like everybody writes about Cary Grant, you know, which is he's worthy to talk about. But I thought Elvis would be an interesting, all right, well, let me just watch all his movies and write about what he's doing and his performances. And people really, really responded to them. So that's how I've become the Elvis girl. That's great, because I feel like you're totally right. Elvis really does get this rap as being successful because he was a singer and that that the movies are just really vanity projects, repositories for him to have a different medium to sell his songs. And yes, that is true in a manner of speaking, but I think people forget that up until a certain point, his movies were incredibly successful and in many ways were creating music that people were by. So it was a different outlet for the music to come in. And he he definitely has charm. And I think a lot of the movies, again, up until a certain point, were suited to who he was as a person, that off-screen persona melding with the on-screen persona. They didn't really tax him outside of, like, what's the serious drama that he did, uh, the period piece. That I can't think Star, um, which is a wonderful, he's wonderful in it, Flaming Star. Yeah. Um, Wild in the Country is a very film, but it's a great, as he's wonderful in it. And some of the earlier, like King Creole is probably his best performance. And that was Michael Curtiz directed mm-hmm. it, Walter Matthau. He was surrounded by Carolyn Jones, like a really a solid 
He always had great supporting cast. But once we move into, and that was his uh, fourth film, the final one before the break when he went into the army. Once he came back, and we can get into the sort of timeline of it because it's important and it also speaks a lot to what was going on in movies in the 1960s, in the studio system. It was collapsing around him, you know, and he remained a moneymaker, you know, which is one of the reasons why he, he felt very trapped by his contract. It was one of the last contracts of its time. By the time, you know, he had a contract like Betty Davis had a contract. It was a prison sentence. It was, you know, they were all fighting against having to churn out these movies and having seven year contracts or whatever. So yeah, once they found the formula, which was really blue Hawaii, I think that was 1962, maybe. That was such a monster hit that they didn't want to screw with that formula anymore. So then they just kept churning out that same movie and it worked. It was the Elvis formula of putting Elvis in a exotic location, put him on location in Hawaii, in Acapulco, in Seattle, very exotic, in Las Vegas, have him be surrounded by women in bikinis and hot cars and throw in a couple songs and you make a million bucks. And in that era where very little was making money because there was, it was just like collapsing. He was very valued for that. They were never going to let him do a serious movie or experiment or never, you know, which he felt he knew that what he was making was not challenging to him. He always wanted to be challenged, but that was his curse. Well, well, we'll get the plot out of the way first before we start deconstructing, because I don't want people to, to get confused about the movie that we're talking about. But we're talking Viva Las Vegas. It's all in the title, really. Uh, uh, although you would be surprised how little actual Vegas scenery we get outside of maybe the showgirls and the opening titles, which have this really long take of the city of Las Vegas at, in 1964, which if you saw Casino in 95, like 90 percent of that was all gone by that point. Right. So it's a really great little time capsule. Yeah. You meet race car enthusiast Lucky Jackson. Again, these care it's all in the name, played by Elvis Presley. He's a guy that doesn't care about money because he wins it, because he's got luck on his side. And he ends up wanting to enter the Las Vegas Grand Prix but he can't afford a motor for his car. He also meets a swim instructor slash pool manager named Rusty Martin, played by Aunt Margaret, who doesn't want him to race because it's dangerous. And then you also have the Count Mancini, played by Cesare Denova, who is the romantic rival, but also wants Lucky to drive for him as a means of letting the Count win. So there's very tangential plots to this entire movie that are all held together by Elvis's charm and songs. Dre, you were going to say something. What were you going to throw out there? Oh, I was just laughing because I do another podcast on modern films and we are currently just getting into a series of watching all of the Fast and Furious movies. And Sheila's description of what's required of like an exotic locale, women in bikinis, fast cars. I was like, Huh, this pitch has really lasted, it stood the test of time. Yeah, there's nothing wrong about any of those things. I want to see them. Yeah. It works. Exactly. <laughs> I agree with you. You noted his name in this, and one of my favorite things about this movie is that either of them could play Lucky Jackson and either of them could play Rusty Martin. And they're, right. uh, there's something just like small and delightful about that touch. Well, if memory serves, many of the names of his characters, and Sheila, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember this when we did the episode on Girl Happy, but many of the names seem very unisex in his films. They're either just kind of like words, you know, nouns, that well, have come yeah. name, or they're, they're very asexual type of names that don't really denote gender. Right. I mean, I think that was one of the most at least for him as a musician, as a, when he first came out, that was one of the things that was most destabilizing and dangerous about him. Not that he carried himself like a woman, but that he was using his sexuality in a way that seemed, first of all, it made the women go crazy, but it also felt burlesque. I'm putting words into people's horrified. It felt burlesque and men didn't use themselves that way, at least not a sort of pop star type guy. Also his own name, Elvis, 
no one had ever heard that sort of name before. Like when people didn't know what that was when he first came on, like Elvis, what, you know? So I think some of his uh, movie characters, I don't know if there was that much thought put into it, but he definitely, I wouldn't say he was androgynous, but I would say that he sort of had a sort of receiving quality to him, even as he was aggressive. I mean, I've compared him to like, there's a Marilyn Monroe, the way he uses himself, very flaunting. I mean, there's a number in Tickle Me, which is almost a lampoon of Elvis movies, which is basically a Mae West burlesque number. There's no, and the whole audience just falls on their asses, you know, just so turned on by him, men and women. So this is probably the reason that he was named Lucky is probably not as (laughs) based on what I'm saying, but it's an interesting part of him. You bring up musicals of the time and I think Viva Las Vegas comes at a really weird time for musicals just in general, because this was released the same year, I think relatively close together with A Hard Day's Night. This made more money, even though Beatlemania was in full swing. But I think a lot of that's because A Hard Day's Night, which is one of my favorite movies, mm-hmm. is a musical second and a parody film first. It, and it's, it's really emphasizing the comedy over the music. And that's because the Beatles had really their own issues with being pop stars. But this really hews to that Elvis formula. And of course, it's impossible to divorce this from the musical that had come before this, which is Bye Bye Birdie, which itself is a parody of the Elvis. The Elvis story, right? Right. And you brought up that number in Tickle Me, which there's a number in Bye Bye Birdie that is almost the exact same thing with the Elvis character driving these women to pass out. There's that great sweeping crane shot over the sea of just comatose women. And Bye Bye Birdie brought back a lot of its cast for this movie, predominantly Anne Margaret and George Sidney, who is the director. And I think that that's something that had to be difficult for him because musicals at this point were mocking. And there was, you know, it was a musical music second mocking first of the genre that they were making all this money off of. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Jay, you were going to say something. (laughs) Well, I'm just wondering how cognizant Elvis was of cultural norms or movie patterns. Because the level that someone lives in a bubble when they are a star in either film or music, not to say he wasn't touched by it, it's just always funny to me that there is such a disparate knowledge of the world when you are surrounded by nothing but people who are being like accommodating and yesing you and gently and also you probably are trying to avoid those things I actually wasn't going to talk about that I was psyched when you brought up the Anne Margaret connection of Bye Bye Birdie and also of this film because Sheila's description of Elvis as someone who embraced his sexuality in performance, and Margaret to me in Viva Las Vegas is such a perfectly tuned balance to what he's doing. You see different people attempt that in different ways. And of course, in film history, talking about chemistry is a long thing. But in terms of the performative quality of what they're doing, Like, literally, you could just deconstruct the shimmy tendencies of Elvis and Anne Margaret. And they're so nicely matched and how it elevates both of their performance. And also, there's, in thinking of who he was at that time, where he had been musically, where he'd been culturally, and then there are these things in this that I thought were so smartly utilized in terms of like weaponizing Anne Margaret's adoring gaze because almost every time he's performing we are getting almost as much look at her being just in awe but not a passive in awe she is a full-bodied to remind you that like oh this woman's amazing and look how into him she is and I found that's my favorite part of this movie is what Anne Margaret's bringing to the table and how it really balances the Elvis of it all. Yeah, I was going to say that they are so equally matched in energy and sexuality and their sexuality appreciates each other in a way that's just so, it's hot, but it's also just very friendly. You know, there's just this friendly vibe between them that makes it her playing hard to get. They both understand the game and that duet that they do by the pool and they're having fun with, you know, she's putting him off and he's like, 
if you notice too, in all the games that they play on their date and stuff, she conquers him at the skeet shooting and at the shootout and stuff. So they're having fun with not having him win all the time, which in most of his movies, he just wins everything. He wins every fight. He wins every race. It was just the formula. And she, she made him work to hold the screen and he, you know, with her and he loved that. He loved the challenge of, because for the most part, he was cast against people who didn't do that. And he was just on fire with her. He just was so excited to play with her. And that really shows. And that's another thing about his performance. You can feel what he's feeling in this one because she's bringing it out. It's there, but you need someone to look at him the way she looks at him to have him just go insane, you know? Yeah, Anne Margaret is a really fascinating personage in this because I think Sheila might agree with me. Many have said that there was never really a co-star that bested her mm-hmm. in the Elvis slate of movies. That, you know, you try to name Elvis leading ladies and you have a hard time past Anne Margaret. That's how much of an equal success she was to him. I watched some trailers for the movie in preparation for this and I think I, I love the poster that says... It's that go-go guy and that bye-bye gal in the fun capital of the world because Bye Bye Birdie was a huge success and it had made Anne Margaret, I mean, she had been working, but it made her kind of an overnight sensation. And in the trailers, she was actually built above him in some of the trailers. That she thing. was a favorite yeah. star. And that really irritated Colonel Tom Parker because his movies were supposed to be Elvis. Elvis was... The, the biggest name, nobody came to see anything else. And I've read some stuff that Anne margaret caused quite a bit of internal strife between Elvis and the Colonel. One, because they'd started dating. And they had stopped dating by the time this was finished filming. But presumably, she was putting kind of the idea in, in Elvis's head that he could do better. But that was not allowed, you know. She was the girl that almost ruined everything. But at the same time, you also have this B-plot going on as they're filming this movie because Anne margaret and George Sidney had worked together on Bye Bye Birdie, which everybody associated with that production was really mad because if you've seen the original play of Bye Bye Birdie, Kim McAfee is not the lead of that film. Right. It is uh, Albert and Rosie played in the movie by Dick Van Dyke and Janet Lee. And both of them were very upset to see the finished product of Bye Bye Birdie because George Sidney had gone back and filmed more scenes with Anne Margaret. He would also redo her dance scenes and he would also film her from every angle, which you would notice in this movie because they're just random shots of Anne Margaret's butt in the yeah. shot or her boobs in the shot. Because the rumor was is that George Sidney had a very unrequited obsession with her that she was just not down for, but she played up to it to get more screen time. And, and they had had a very difficult time with that film because the other cast members had said that this, she had fundamentally altered the plot and run away with that picture. And here, that was something that was continued. George Sidney would redo her scenes from every angle. He would require that she do more takes. Yeah, there's already a lechy vibe with the way all the actors treat her, but then you read about how the director treated her on set and you're kind of like, huh, this is problematic now. But I mean, she commanded that much clout that she could do that. That set just had to be a powder keg of people just giving each other the side eye. Well, I think too, she wasn't like ruthless, but she wanted to be a star. And she was I think, she was, you know, and I think that George Sidney, the way he films her, you know, this may not be, I don't know, male obsession often results in gorgeous work. He films her. You can feel his feelings for her. I mean, the close-ups are stunning of her. You know, the one, she's got the green scarf and she's just looking at him with all this love in her eyes. Yes, and Colonel Tom was like, why are there so many close-ups of this woman? This is an Elvis movie. This is blah, blah, blah. And originally, they did three duets. This is just one of the pains of an Elvis fan is that he did so few duets, which he should have been doing duets all along with all kinds of people like other singers were doing, but that was just not his brand. He would have loved it, but he was under the thumb of Tom Thumb. And so they had originally had three duets in Viva Las Vegas. One of them was turned into a solo 
And then one, which is an absolutely explosive duet, which you can find it actually a recording of it exists if you're the boss with the two of them going back and forth. And the only one that survives in the film is The Lady Loves Me, which is around the pool. And that was the Colonel like, but she does get two solos. She has the talent show and then she's mad. It's done in one take when she's making the mustard and ketchup sandwiches. There's nothing else on them. Like, what? And she, she like, walks away with that. And because of that, it's a better movie. But Colonel Tom didn't care about that stuff. He just, you know. Well, I have to throw out what George Sidney said about this movie. This was a film that seemed very slapdash in terms of George Sidney said, quote, That was one of those cases where we had no script and we had a commitment. Originally, it was something about an Arabian or something. But we turned it around and we wrote the script in about 11 days. We changed the whole thing and decided to do it in Las Vegas. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this doesn't feel, if you listen to the episode I did on Girl Happy, I didn't love that movie by a long shot. But even though this does feel like the plot is just very aimless, there is still a plot there. There is a reason for these characters to intersect. I think it falls apart a bit at the end because you remember, oh yeah, there's supposed to be a race that happens in this movie. And I love the trailer says, you know, one of the most thrilling races ever filmed. And I'm like, is it though? Is it because that one really great exploding car scene, but it's all- I love how like clearly that person died and nobody cares. It's never (laughs) again. And like Anne Margaret is like in the helicopter, like, oh no. And then she's like, go lucky, go lucky. It's like brutal. Especially looking at it from now, this movie is only a few years away from bullets. The right. So the idea of, I mean, of course, every movie as it's coming out, you're saying is the best of whatever, but it's not like this was filmed at a time so far removed from when you could actually capture right. really tense car races or anything. I love, this is the epitome, and I might use this from now on of, oh yeah, that's an 11 day script. It also has that jukebox musical reconfiguration or the retrofitting that you get with a lot of these. Okay, well, step one, what songs do we have access to? Right. Okay, step two, is there a narrative we can pull from these songs? Because definitely our main character and then also the woman will be singing some of them. So this whole, the like shoving in of moments and it's always funny to me to see how those make a narrative pivot, but... It's especially like her, I love that you pointed out the ketchup and mustard sandwiches because I had to rewind. It took me a minute to figure out what she was slapping on the bread. And she makes like eight of these disgusting sandwiches. There's so many. And she does them rhythmically. It's part of her dance. It's amazing. And no cuts in that whole thing. Yeah. It's yeah. beautiful. It's, well, it's a nice it's a nice balance to the one shot of the like title track of his performance. But the idea of just how angry she gets or like she starts to get really mad at this man. She's met a day before, hours before. <laughs> they go on one date, a date that took place in a time traveling device, probably the TARDIS from Doctor Who, because in their single date, <laughs> where it's still daylight when it ends, they go tandem water skiing. They go to like eight, they go to the Hoover Dam. They go to so many. D- Doesn't that look like the best date though? It's the best date. You take a helicopter ride, you go water skiing, you do yes. a little shootout at a Western The town. shootout. Oh my God. You go on your motorcycles. Yeah. Yeah, a costume change between each one. It is so amazing and ridiculous. And the idea that it's like done before dinner as well. It's my favorite thing. Like every movie about a burgeoning romance should include a scene of just total nonsense of every date you could ever be on in one five-hour block. Also, it's a talent show where you undress in front of your fellow employees and perform a song about having men buy you expensive jewelry as a means of showing you, quote, their appreciation. I was sitting there watching that talent show and she's in that one piece suit that is incredibly bunchy. I was not understanding why it's such, it bunches up in the front, uh, aside from maybe like a haze code thing. They were like, nope, it, we can't have the camera like that level and have it skin tight. Like you got to bunch it up or something. But 
I, I it's was like thinking, a built-in ruching over the yeah. corset. Like it's not, you're right, it's intentional, which is also some of the style at the time. But it stood out to me as well that I'm like, there were several things because she's obviously gorgeous and it's like this tight little tiny dancer. And there were a few costumes, like her yellow swimsuit thing in the duet that Sheila mentioned. I was staring and I'm like, this is amazing that they managed to make her look bad. How is this happening? But sorry, I had to, I didn't want to forget you guys to share that I thought she looked not as great as possible. But please, Kristen. That's the thing that there's this, I love how they're color coordinated in certain scenes. You know, there's this syncopation to them, you know, in their relationship that it doesn't even matter that the end scene after they get married is just the scenes of them performing at the talent show spliced together. They're not actually sharing the same stage as like a finale number. They're reusing that same footage. But their relationship at the same time is also very lecherous. I mean, it's 1964. I know we don't have the same views on gender relations then that we have now. That was something that Elvis was, was known for in a lot of his movies, kind of no means try harder. And he certainly does not take no for an answer in this movie. I mean, he goes from nightclub to nightclub because he automatically assumes she's a showgirl, which I love that that's really the biggest kind of screw you to the to the movie's narrative is that she's not a showgirl. She's a working woman that's a manager of this. Couple team. jobs. Yes. Yeah, she's clearly either going to school or she's teaching dance. Yeah. To Terry Gar, by the way. You know, Terry Gar is one of the dancers. No! Um, yep. If you watch the Come On Everybody number where they're in the gym, she's in the horizontal striped pink and blue sweater. She did like eight or nine Elvis movies because she was under contract. Which I lo- And I also noticed that the dance scene, the song that they're, they're singing on the stage with the students sounds exactly like the song What I Say that they play later. It's the same tune. And I was like, oh, are we playing the same song? And I've seen this movie before. So that was the thing. So I was like, I don't remember them singing this song twice. And I was like, no, I think Elvis just borrowed the same tune. And then yeah, they had added what, it, what I Say later. Like they added that in, he recorded it. They just, it was sort of a spur of the moment, which is why it feels so kind of frenzied and out of control. That scene is just like, they're both, is because that wasn't planned. And it was kind of like, oh yeah, let's just throw this other number in there. Thank goodness they included it though, because their rendition of the doo-wop number, the Squatty Waddy was not uh, exactly romantic. Oh, see, I think I totally disagree. I think that what they are doing in that, because they're just dancing with the, you know, the quartet is just singing and that's his background singers, the Jordanaires, not the guys in the movie, but the voices. And I just feel like what they're doing, I wrote a whole piece about what they're doing in that because they're like, in each other's. The thing about, I'll just, this is a little bit of a digression. It also says something about the movies in the 60s and how kind of really puritanical they were about sex coming after sort of the explosion of rock and roll in the 50s, late 40s and 50s. Hollywood, you know, suddenly we have like Doris Day playing a, you know, 35-year-old woman who's holding out for marriage and we have Gidget and we have the Beach Blanket Bingo movies where sex just vanishes. Like I'm reading Nick Toskis's book right now and he wrote this piece saying, in Elvis movies, there's not even a possibility of getting late. It's off the table. So it makes it more prurient than it would be if people were just able to pursue each other. It's one of the weird quirks of some 1960s films until everything explodes at the end of the decade and now all bets are off. So it makes it a strange, putting Elvis in that environment is very strange. It makes it, there's a disconnect between, you know, instead of just going out or going to bed, they have to get married at the end, even though they've known each other for like two days. Yeah, I agree. It's funny that two such sexual potent beings are like castrated in this very strange way. And they have to be, you know, in that it's just one of the weird things that I was thinking about that watching Viva this last time thinking, God, this is so wild watching this because people were protesting Elvis when he first came out with songs in the 50s and after his Milton Berle, which Anne Margaret also was on, and that this would be where he would go. It's just, it's very American. For I mean, like, no wonder this 
obviously he is such an American symbol. That something that explosive and that crazy and that like Dionysian has got to be contained, you know? Um, oh yeah, just the Puritan wash of yeah, it, this, like, yeah. And when he bust yeah. out, he bust out in black leather down. He was right. like, oh, now I'm, I'm a man. I'm 31, 32. It's 1969. Through all that, you know? Yeah. Well, even in that scene, too, at the talent show, when he comes out to perform Viva Las Vegas, and he's, my mom and I were debating, and maybe somebody can answer this for us. Is he wearing a black coat with a red collar, or is that a red shirt underneath the jacket? I think it's a, I was thinking that. I think it's a red shirt because if you look down near his You can pants, see the red underneath. But it's and, open. It's yeah. Open. yeah. And that was the thing I, I really noticed. And it shows you <laughs> how covered this is a movie that opens right. Anne Margaret's legs and some of the most life threatening, I say, booty shorts. I Those short shorts, I know. But but this is a movie that when you really think about it, is feels very chaste. So when Elvis comes out with that open shirt, you're just like, I mean, I was kind of sitting there thinking skin. And I was like, wait, why am I saying that? Because this <laughs> right. is a movie that has Anne Margaret in a, a bathing suit. And they're water skiing at one point. And so he doesn't have his shirt on. But I was still like shocked that there's maybe because it's that connection with sexuality as opposed to these are just two people on a water ski, but it's really just the back lot, you know, with a background behind them and some mist being spewed in their way. Wait, wait, Kristen, are you trying to tell me they did not actually do that water skiing? I hate to tell you this, but yes, much like my favorite summer movie, Gidget. They did not actually do any of the theatrics on the water that they are touted to have done. It's that's one of my favorite, like these kinds of films. If you're going to be ridiculous, be ridiculous. Right. I am here for your ridiculosity. And when their date involved them, I, again, I could just talk about this date for the rest of my <laughs> life. But when their date involved them, not just like, hey, Let's go water skiing as one part of our date. But let's go water skiing and we're both going to be off the back of a boat. And we're also going to know how to do these tricks where like we pass across the wake and I'm going to go under your toe. And then you like, I honestly, it made me so happy. It made me as happy as the fact that he very casually, this guy who's so poor, he can't afford an engine for his car is like, Hey, cool. Let's just go around in this helicopter. I, I, that like, I fly. <laughs> this, that, this, that I'm going to fly you around in a helicopter I'm that's the crying. size of a teacup and also bright gold. It's, it was, I was, and that, that even her dad calls attention <laughs> to like, aren't those really expensive? And he's like, oh yeah, the guy just owes me a favor. <laughs> I love but it. That's, Be that's ridiculous. The right. That's the joy of these movies is that right. this is, really presented as almost like this hard scrabble salt of the earth type of guy in that he loses a gigantic wad to go back to the fast and the furious like a fast and the furious level wad of cash he drops it in the swimming pool and the world's worst child ever jumps in and picks it up and just like sticks it like lets it go into the pool drain or whatever and instead of being down and out about losing what looks to be several hundred dollars lucky's just like oh well you know i'll just work at the hotel yeah now i'll pay off my debts that way he's a man for which money has no meaning and so when ann margaret shows up and she's like no i want to buy a boat for my dad i have ambitions and goals I was a little pain that the movie ends without having those goals realized. <laughs> the movie ends with her getting married after she's declared that she's not going to get married, that she wants to buy her a boat for her dad. So I was thinking, okay, maybe the movie's going to end. And again, I've seen this movie before with somehow Lucky being like, I won the race. I got the girl. I'm going to buy my girl's dad a boat. Nope. Poor William Demarest is just... Sitting in the world's most spacious houseboat. And it's an awesome space, yeah. Exactly. I was like, he doesn't need a boat. He's living in a yacht already. Like, it's totally I'm nice. sure he'll get his boat. I, no <laughs> yeah. Sure everything's going to be fine. There are no real problems in Elvis movies, you know. Well, the funny thing, like, this is an 11-day script, and they spent two hours of those 11 days thinking about the ending. Maybe. Maybe. 
20 minutes because not only like when you're retrofitting a story together around songs and around like, oh, we really just want moments. And honestly, I didn't look through the credits, but I'm like, I'm assuming the Las Vegas Tourism Board, like this was the pre what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas ad campaign was this movie. Like it literally makes it look, because who thinks of going to Vegas so they can have fun outdoor activities? Do you know what I mean? Like this anyway. So they work in all of these things. And in addition to talking about a establishing her as a woman who's not even just a lifeguard but oh miss rusty martin pool manager or whatever like it's she has a sign on the like right. side of the pool as you do so she's like smart and has you know business acumen and goals and dreams she also has laid out which probably came through on like day 10 this her like oh well she needs to get mad at him for no reason Uh, no reason for no reason so let's say the reason is she's worried about his safety because the count kind of suggests that it's not safe so then he's like competes in it anyway but there's also nothing at the end of when he wins he's not like there, I'm done. I just wanted to win once. I just wanted to prove I could do it. Let's go be safe and happy together. There's no line. It just cuts to their wedding scene. And all you're like, and I know she's not pregnant because they spent no time together. Why did these two people just get married? What is happening? It's the dumbest ending. <laughs> I do want to throw out, if uh, you, you brought up the script, we've talked about the script a, a bit. This was one of the last films for a couple of the old guard. This was one of George Sidney's last films, not his last film, but one of his last films. This was also one of the last films for screenwriter Sally Benson, who I did not think wrote this script, but she did. And it always shocks me. You might know Sally Benson. Her first screenplay was 1943's Shadow of a Doubt, which was definitely not an 11-day script. <laughs> I wish people could see the look on Drea's face when I declared that news. She also would write the novel that they would base Meet Me on St. Louis on. She did Anna and the King of Siam. A couple other things along the way. Disney's Summer Magic was, was her big thing in the 60s which is also similarly a very chaste turn of the century, going back to simpler times movie. She would do this as a written by credit. And I forget how screenplay credits work, but I want to say written by is not necessarily the same as screenplay by. Like there's a bit, a few, few more cooks in that kitchen when, when you get a written by credit. But her final credited film would be in 1966, and it would be appropriately enough the singing nun starring debbie reynolds so yeah poor sally this is definitely a weird little like dive in her screenplay writing um, she probably got paid so much more for this than <laughs> she did for the screenplays that people revere and respect yeah what i also want to throw out, we didn't talk about the rival quote unquote and i'm not talking about the the baby blue racing cars and margaret sings in the song you also have The Count, played by Cesare Denova, who was, was an Italian actor, which is always great to see actors portraying the country that they're actually from. Best known for a very small role in, well, I don't know how small it is. It's been a while since I've sat through all four hours of Cleopatra, but he was in that. I remember him most fondly playing the Kahuna character in the sequel, Gidget Goes to Rome, which is probably the only good Gidget sequel. You know, I love Gidget. Gidget Goes to Wine's fine. And then Gidget Goes to Rome is just Gidget in Rome. It's literally the same plot of the original film, Transported to Rome. But uh, did a lot of TV towards uh, towards the 70s and into the 80s. Pretty much every TV show you could think of, Cesare Nova did uh, at least a guest spot on. But, I mean, he's a solid foil. He tries. The movie never really sets him up. When you, Sheila, you said there are no problems in Elvis movies. There are no villains either. Because, really, they start out as friends for about half the movie, kind of. You know, they're both interested in, in rusty... But the Count has his endgame. He wants Lucky to be kind of his fool that will make a path in the race for him to win. And he's like, no, it's happening. But then they do this third act kind of shift where he's like, well, if I can't win the race, I'm definitely going to take your girlfriend. Um, And he tries to seduce Anne Margaret in this really funny, farcical dinner scene 
But then when he starts to actually be the sexual figure and try to put the moves on Rusty, she's just like, man, I don't know what man is. I need to go over here. Yeah, I'm just sitting on the couch. Yeah. 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 And then that he just kind of disappears at the end. I, I don't think he died in the, the fiery wreck of the race, but we never see him again. So yeah, you see him, he returned. I think he's like, hey, you know, you can see his car come back in the final. So you're like, oh. So that horrible crash where she's like, oh, no, go lucky. So, yeah, he survives. I'm sure he, you know, yeah. Maybe he bought William Demarest the boat and then they live together on it. I don't know. I mean, anything is literally possible at the end of this movie. I thought that, is it Cesare? Is that how you say his name? I've always pronounced it Cesare. Cesare. I I don't speak Italian, so I'm not sure. (laughs) I thought he did a great job in terms of the absurdity of emotional thrust just ter- switching all the time of like, now you're friends, now you're enemies. He was like, okay, what I really liked, in t- like for these, the puzzle piece of chemistry with characters of trying to just make sure, are is everyone at the same level? Is there the same flippancy? Is there the same whatever right. to them? And I thought he had a really nice, he was just as amiable and full-bodied as they were but he had a nice grounded languidness to him whereas they're both like ping 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 like Anne margaret is just a spinning dervish burr, 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 burr. and then elvis is like bah, 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 bah. yeah i'll make music out of this but then the count is just as bright but much more chill and i thought it was a really good balance as much as his motivations weren't always clear and they did not care. They did. They ran out of days for that. But I thought that, you know, like, oh, he's there. He stands in. He's a rival of sorts in a couple different ways. But he's also not going to sing because he's no Elvis. So I don't know. I thought I thought and it was well utilized. Slightly more, he's slightly more adult. Uh, you know, if you yes. can say he's a little bit more of a man and Elvis and... And Margaret feel like teenagers. Oh, yeah. The Count was yeah. definitely having sex. Like, right. the, Count's, yeah. the Count's dates did not end at dinner time. Yeah. No, no, not at all. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> when, you just, when you just said his motivations weren't always clear, I almost lost it. <laughs> like, oh, God. We want to discuss before we wrap it up. Anybody have any final things they want to throw out there? I do. There, there's one small behind the scenes thing that I believe it was through Anne Margaret that David Winters became a part of this, the choreographer. And his work is so interesting and distinctive. And actually having that, wait, what's the Squatty Waddy again? The Squatty Waddy, right? That there's there was something about this time that's so endearing of, I, and actually we still do it like hip-hop will have like a certain dance you do to something i'm sure the tiktok generation someone could do an entire comparison but david winters was behind creating like the frug and the freddy and all of these 60s dances that were just like random little motions you would do to a certain song and i really there's you know there's something about his sense of movement and how it translates in this because it's both gives you that idea of a choreographed piece but is so much more accessible than most of these like you're not watching a Busby Berkeley thinking I can do that but you could watch Viva Las Vegas and be like yeah I mean I got some shimmy in me I could probably uh, get this going it's a lot right. of Aunt Margaret like slapping her sides and like shaking a shoulder and growling. There's a lot of growl face and I feel that I don't know if I could definitely do those dances because how can you, you make a growl face and not look like like it's weird? No, we all have growl face in us, Kristen. <laughs> you have to mean it. Yeah, you really have to feel it. You can't fake that, for sure, for sure. And, and when all else fails, just put the camera down low near Anne Margaret's backside and everything will make sense. I mean, the fact those, those shots with her butt and him dancing higher which happens a couple times with Come On Everybody and What I Say, are just, for me, they're, it's what the, this movie is all about, you know? Um, he's doing his thing. She's having so much fun. They're filming it in a way that is a funny quality to it. But Anne margaret is always in on the joke. I think that's one of the things that is really 
it's it's I guess you could call it leering, but I feel like she's she's participating in it fully. She knows exactly what she's doing and is enjoying herself. Yeah, I don't feel like, like yeah, she's being taken advantage of her. I feel like she's like, oh my god, I'm starring in an Elvis movie and I've got to bring it up. I'm putting it out there and I'm having a blast. And so when that happens, I just sort of get to relax and enjoy them and not worry about people. You know? Yeah, I think there's something I. I don't know if maybe it's unfair to Anne Margaret that I feel that she is empowered in these and maybe she would have been happy if someone like, uh, can we not just close up on her butt all the time? But there is a small sense that in any of those shots at any given moment, she would turn around to the camera and indicate how much she was enjoying having the camera right there. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I don't think she was hung up on it. And I think she really enjoyed being successful. I think she was really, really excited. And she was, they were very similar people in that they were very kind of committed to being grateful. They would talk about those things all the time. They were not partiers at all, neither of them. They like rode their Harleys together and the producers would be like, please stop going for midnight Harley rides. You're going to both die and the movie will be over. Um, So they were very grateful for what they had. And so I think she had, had good you know, kind of structure around her for the craziness that was being a sex symbol at such a young age. And but she wanted it. She definitely wanted it and ended up headlining in Vegas, just as he did through the 60s, 70s, probably beyond. She became associated with Vegas just as he did because of this film. So, yeah, I, I think this movie, Viva Las Vegas is interesting because it's really the movie that tests whether you are not just an Elvis fan, but I feel like a classic film person because you you really have to not only suspend disbelief, but kind of be able to work with what the studio system was offering at this time. I mean, this is the death knell of the studio system. And so it's really firing on the last fumes of what audiences would take. So it has a very light, non-existent plot. It's very peppy. It's very bouncy. But at the same time, it's pure escapist entertainment. It's the 1964 equivalent. I did not know this would be uh, me sponsoring Gushaki, uh, Andrea, but it's the 1960s equivalent of The Fast and the Furious, if you really think about it, in that it's just a good time that you can have sitting for less than 90 minutes. This is considered the shortest Elvis movie. But you come to care about these characters for as little as you know about them. And Elvis is really charming. and margarets really charming. You want them to succeed. You wish they did more movies together, but of course that... Or 100%. Happen. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, there's there's classic film 101, which is like Casablanca, okay? And you're like, okay, I'm a classic film person. I feel like this is the AP level of classic cinema. Like if you watch <laughs> Eva Las Vegas and you're like, okay, I still like classic film. Like you can go into the, like the more obscure stuff. I feel like there, this is a testing film almost in many ways. Well, also, like the, the snapshots of, it gives a snapshot of a culture the movie culture in a really yeah. interesting, weird, like I just wrote the essay for Great Escape, which came out the same year that this was filmed, which is 1963. It was a weird time. Cleopatra sank stuff. You know, people were losing, hemorrhaging money and something like Elvis movies survived. I also think this is one of the things that I points that I've made in my writing about Elvis is that if you watch this home alone, which I'm sure we all just did, you know, you can kind of get into it. And, but if you, if you just picture seeing it at a drive-in on a hot summer night with popcorn and maybe a date and it makes perfect sense. It makes, it's how it should be seen. And it's the context that, uh, you know, they were made for that. That's, and <laughs> I can't remember who made this observation. Basically, like, that the last 20 minutes of every Elvis movie are, like, nothing. You don't even have to see it because everyone is now making out like crazy in their cars. I mean, you know, that there's no songs. Nothing new happens. So, it, I don't know. I, there's a Sheila, I don't know how anyone could rip their eyes away from that chase, that race. I mean... <laughs> well, if you have a hot date, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, I know. It's kind of an interesting, for me, I love them because I love, as Kurt Russell said, I love Elvis movies because Elvis is in them. And you kind of have to be hardcore to be that, but I'm pretty hardcore. I just enjoy him and I enjoy thinking about him and writing about him. 
it's tough if you don't feel that way. But I think his movies are worth talking about because they are emblematic of the larger things that were going on in the industry in the 60s when things were falling apart. Dre, what are your final takeaways on Viva Las Vegas? I, it had been a while. I've seen this before and it had been a while. And in re-looking at it, I, you do, I think, I love the idea of putting yourself in the mindset of being at the drive-in. Because when I was looking at it, I'm like, this is nice, but I kind of almost need something else to be doing at the same time. Like, maybe I just want to make a row of ketchup and mustard sandwiches while I'm watching. But like, it's easily distracting because it's it's such absurd nonsense. And so it's more of like looking up every once in a while and be like, oh, this is a great little moment. Because if you're watching it with any kind of like looking for story consistency or any motivations for almost any single character at any given moment, then you're just thinking, well, this is garbage nonsense. But, you know, it's fun garbage nonsense. So I found it... Um, it is the kind of thing that I would offer up the preface of get into this headspace and then just get up and shimmy with them every time there's a dance. <laughs> Very true. Of course, you can send us your thoughts on Elvis Presley, Viva Las Vegas, anything to ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on the next episode. We want to thank Sheila O'Malley for joining us on the show today. Sheila, where can fans find to get in touch with you, read your work online, all of that? Um, well, I'm on Twitter, Sheila Kathleen. I have a website, Sheila Variations, which is just my name, SheilaMalley.com. Um, I've written about Elvis at Film Comment. They actually let me do that, which was so much fun. It's my pinned tweet. So if you want to see me go into depth and I talk about his movies there, that's it. Andrea Clark, where can fans find you online? I am on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I have a podcast of contemporary films called Who Shot Ya? And you can always find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. You can download Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts, get your radio, Player FM, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, help us out. Leave us a rating and a review because those matter. If you want to follow the podcast and learn about upcoming episodes, you can do that at ticklish underscore biz. If you want to get awesome merch, including buttons, Blu-rays and DVDs, all sorts of stuff, you can head over to patreon.com slash ticklish biz. We're giving people access to exclusive polls. Our newest level, the Taylor, lets you actually guest host on an episode one day if you are so inclined. Uh, we have a bunch of other stuff, including bonus shows, bonus podcasts. It's all there. Patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. So next time, we will have another special guest on our road to 100. And we're going to be talking about Anime Wong and her film, Daughter of Shanghai. Till then.